Good morning. I was given a leaflet as I came in this morning, and I had to check to make sure that I was in the right place. Uh, because as I look around, I wasn't sure, but this leaflet says, Crescent Church is a Christian fellowship which has worshipped and served God in the heart of Belfast for more than 100 years. That's true. And what you're sitting in is um, a visual aid. The, the leadership of this church have decided for this morning's service to put this together so that you'll be left in no doubt that they're planning to be here for some time yet, subject to intervening events from heaven. Because there is a belief in this place that the next major event in the history of the world is not 31 October, but the return of the Lord Jesus. But this is a wonderful um, visual aid for what we're looking at this morning, and that is as things around that are familiar and dear to us are changed and revised and shaken and perhaps lost, what can we hold on to? What is our confidence based in? What's the root of it? What's the foundation of it? Is there something solid in all the change and uncertainty and difficulty around us? Tim Keller has said many forces are hostile to our faith. Uh, One of the things that strikes me about what is going on here is the determination to hold on to the witness to the Lord Jesus Christ in this place. This is a very critical location, situated where it is in Belfast and close to the university, the, the place where opinion formers and leaders are going to be shaped. This is a critical place to bear witness to the truth of the Lord Jesus. But Keller goes on to say, popular culture disdains our faith, regards it as narrow. Many world leaders find it threatening. Powerful institutions want it gone or only believed in secret. And there are some who are sufficiently pessimistic, including this man, Rod Dreher, in this book called The Benedict Option, to think that the lights have gone out. This is how he puts it. The light of Christianity is flickering all over the West. There are people alive today who may live to see the effective death of Christianity within our civilization. By God's mercy, the faith may continue to flourish in the global South and China, but barring a dramatic reversal of current trends, it will all but disappear entirely from Europe and North America. This may not be the end of the world, but it is the end of a world, and only the willfully blind would deny it. For a long time, we have downplayed or ignored the signs. Now the floodwaters are upon us, and we're not ready. He then goes on to quote from an Anglican theologian called Radner, and he says this, There is no safe place in the world or in our churches within which to be a Christian. It is a new epoch. That's a pretty gloomy assessment. And it's obviously not the assessment that the the powers in this church, the leadership, subscribe to, and nor should they. And what you're looking at in the short series that you're going to be doing is the idea that there is a basis, a solid basis, to live in this changing world 
this hostile environment to the Christian faith, but to live in that environment, not blind to the problems around us, not deaf to the challenging voices, not immune to the criticism, but quietly confident in God, that God is going to bring us through, and God is going to do what is required so that the church will survive and be sustained. And what I've been asked to look at this morning is a a section from the Old Testament. If you've got a Bible, if not, I'm going to read it to you. It's found in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 to 14. And let me just set the context for those of you not familiar with it. This is uh, part of what my Jewish friends call the Tanakh. We call it the Old Testament. The idea behind this is that the, the world in which we live has a creator. It's not self-existent. It's not self-sustaining. It has a beginning because there is someone who started it, and he has revealed himself as the Lord of glory, the creator of heaven and earth. And having made this universe in all its complexity and vastness, he is the one who sustains it by his word, by his power. And the claims of the Jewish faith expressed in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and the claim of the New Testament following on from that Old Testament foundation is that the God who created and sustains the universe is the God who acts and speaks into it. And that out of the population of the world that was in rebellion against his moral rule, having decided to live life on their own terms without him, that God raised up for himself an individual called Abram, and through Abram, a nation. And to that nation, God specially revealed himself, teaching them, working with them over hundreds of years, preparing them for his great intervention into history. When God the Son, God is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the claim of the Christian faith is that God the Son, equal to the Father, equal to the Spirit, put on skin and came to where we are, and lived among us, and taught truth, revealing who God is, and what he requires, and what his standards are, and how we should live and relate to each other, revealing that we are morally bankrupt. Without his intervention, we cannot live up to the standards God has set. The, the pass rate is 100% in the exam, and no one gets there. And so God, having viewed mankind in rebellion against him comes in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, an historic figure who is both God and man, not only teaches, not only demonstrates his supernatural authority and power by miraculous interventions in in, in nature and healing, he does all of that in order to demonstrate that he is who he says he is, equal to God the Father and God the Spirit. And that having brought the truth about God, having done good only and always, he finds himself hanging naked on a cross. And as he hangs there, the claim of the Bible is that God punishes him for my moral rebellion, for my transgressions, for my failures, for my corruption, and yours. And that having died a real death, God brings him back to life supernaturally, 
and then he ascends to heaven, where he is now seated, waiting to return the next great event, not 31 October. That's the Christian claim. And as part of that long project that God spent time and energy and resources working with this people of Israel, the Jewish people back in the the 7th century, we find that he had brought them into a land. He had set up a, a religious building called the temple. He had explained to them how they ought to approach him the right and wrong way and how they had to bring sacrificial animals to drive home to them the seriousness of their moral breaches and that he required that to be dealt with. All of this was by way of a a visual aid, a bit like this visual aid around us. The visual aid that rebellion against God is costly. It requires an atoning sacrifice, and that God himself provides the sacrifice. That's what he promised. But there was a period whenever the people of Israel, as God's people sometimes do, they get tired of following God. And they disobeyed. And so God said, if you continue in this, I will punish you by taking you out of the land that I've committed to you, and I will put you in on the naughty step. I'll put you into exile. I'll put you into punishment for 70 years and then bring you back. And some of the people said, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he did it. He did it. And what we're going to read is a letter sent by God to the people that he had put into exile. They went out in 597 BC to the world-dominant empire at the time called Babylon. God was effectively saying, I told you I was going to do this, and, and I did it. And the question they're going to face is, how do we get here? Now what do we do that we are here? So let's read from Jeremiah 29. I'm picking up in the English Standard Version, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. A prophet, I just pause, is not simply someone who can tell the future. That may or may not happen. A prophet is essentially someone raised up by God to be an authorized spokesperson someone given a message from God for the people. So there was always a a meaning for the people at the time, and it may or may not involve future events. And then the writer explains when this happened. It was a short time after the people had been captured by the Babylonian forces and taken into exile. And it explains in verse 3 who were the couriers of the letter. Let me pick it up in verse 4. It said, so this is the content of the letter, and the claim is that the author of this letter is not, not Jeremiah the prophet. He's the man who writes it down, but he's claiming authority from God for these words. He's claiming that this is God's message to the people. The letter said, verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that you may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, don't decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. 
and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. The word translated welfare there in our English is actually the word shalom. I'll come back to that. But the direction is pray to the Lord on its behalf for its shalom, for in its shalom you will find your shalom. Verse 8, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, don't let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and don't listen to the dreams they dream, for it's a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I didn't send them, declares the Lord. Pause. There were some people going around amongst the exiles, of which there were 3,000-odd taken away. You'll find that in chapter 57, 52, rather. And some people were going around and saying, yeah, we're, we're here in this, this God-forsaken place called Babylon, but we're going to get out fast. It won't take long. God will send in the special heavenly SAS, and we'll be airlifted out. Just hang on there for a short time. We'll soon be out of here. And God says through this message, no, I did not send them. It's a lie. Verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, Jerusalem. So he's saying it's not a few months. It's not a few years. It won't all be over by Christmas. 70 years, three generations. For I know the plans I have for you, verse 11 declares the Lord, plans for your welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. And for those of you not familiar with the story, which I imagine is very few of you, God is good to his word. And after the requisite time on the naughty step, 70 years, not five minutes, which is what my my son does to his children, 70 years, and God keeps his promise and brings them back. But how did they get there in the first place? These are the three things we want to look at in the time we've got. How did this happen? That must have been the question that was burning as they were looking around them. This foreign land, foreign language, foreign culture, all of the familiar things that you're used to that are the marks of home are stripped away from you. And you're put into a strange culture that is not only different but is hostile to all that you know and all you believe in and all that is important to you. Well, it wasn't that God was distracted or disloyal to them. He had had told them, promised them this would happen if they continued in their disobedience. And he, he always keeps his promise. God can be counted on keeping his promises. But this is part of his big plan. It's all too easy and dangerous just to take a narrow zoom and focus in on my individual life, important as it is, and not see how it fits into God's big picture. And as part of God's big plan, he had brought Abram, promised Abram that he would give them the land and that he would bless them with many descendants and he would bless the world through this man and his descendants. And here the descendants are in the land and they have the temple and they have all of this magnificent structure and system and regime that God himself has designed. 
And, well, you might think that was good enough and God would just allow that to go on and on and on. But that wasn't his plan. His plan was that through this structure he would develop a relationship with people. He was more interested in their holiness than their comfort. He was more interested in developing a relationship with them as he always is. And so his great plan was focused on the day when he would, having punished them and brought them back, the climax of the plan would be that first century spring day when in that very same city from which they'd been taken and to which they would return, that man would hang naked on the cross. It was a temporary measure, teaching them, disciplining them. And ultimately, he says to them, there is a reason for you to hope. But the reason for their hope was rooted in himself and his commitment to them and his promises to them. Someone has defined hope as uh, H-O-P-E, hold on, pain ends. It's a sort of schmaltzy thing that you find in Clinton Carr. It's not the Bible understanding of hope, and it's not what God is here talking about as hope. It's not a matter of hold on in Babylon for a number of years, and and the pain, though it's great, will end, and, and then something else will come along and be a pain for you. God is saying to them, you're there, it will end, and after that, more things will happen, and ultimately, I'm going to do something which will give a basis for a hope that is guaranteed rooted in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The exile to Babylon and the horrors of the cross were both events that move history forward. God is not stagnant. He's not marking time. He is working with these people, and he brings it to conclusion and climax in the cross and always keeps his promises, but does so at a level that is more complex than we can easily discern. So that's how they got there. But the next question they're asking themselves is, now what? Now that we're here, what do we do? Seventy years is a long time. Now what? And there are conflicting voices. And Jeremiah comes forth and he says, I've got something to say to you, and it's from God himself. And that's a staggering claim, which is at the heart of the Christian message. That God is not simply the creator and sustainer and sovereign and moral governor, but he's the God who speaks, who communicates. And that's either true or it's not. Christianity is not a system of morality or philosophy that is is helpful to to the weak-minded and those who are sad. I know some people, they think that's what church is about. It's, It's where you go when you have a problem. It's where you go if you're a bit feeble-minded. It's where you go for a bit of company and companionship. It's, it's, if it's true that there is a God who has created, sustained, and rules the world, and if it's true that his son took skin and walked among us and died for our sins and rose again and is waiting to come back in judgment, if that is true, it changes everything. Christianity is either true or it's not. And if it's not true, I don't want it. Do you? And if you're not sure as to whether it's true or not, you need to find out the answer to that question. There's a recently published book by Peter Williams, Can I Trust the Gospels, which I recommend to you, which 
deals very simply and clearly with these issues. Can we trust this message that is so familiar to many of us? But is it true? It is true. And so he says, does this prophet, this spokesman Jeremiah, I've got a message from God for you. And there are really three critical ingredients to it, verses 5 to 7, if you've still got a text open. He says, verses 5 and 6, live as resident aliens. You don't belong in this place. You'll never belong in this place. But that's not a reason not to settle down and thrive and flourish, build houses, build families. You'll be there for three generations. Secondly, he says in verse 7, when you're there, seek the shalom, the welfare of the city. But this is Babylon. This is the very antithesis of God's city. This is not a place where God is honored or respected or admired. This is Babylon. Yes. And what's your point? Seek the welfare, the shalom of that place. The peace, the welfare, it's not simply the absence of strife. It's the presence of positive blessing and wholeness. And so what God is saying, settle down, realize that you're there for the long haul, three generations, but while you're there, don't just huddle together and grit your teeth against the the, the problems around you. Get involved in the well-being the wholesomeness, the blessing of that city, dark as it is. You are meant to be a blessing in that place, says God. In its welfare, you will find your welfare. I'm blessing you to be a blessing. That was the principle that God gave to Abram. It's the principle that always applies to God's people. As we're blessed, we're meant to be a blessing to others. And then he says in verse 7, a staggering thing, pray for Babylon. So, settle down, work for the welfare, the shalom, the wholeness of this dark, benighted place, and pray. This, I understand, is the only place in the Old Testament where prayer is directed for enemies or unbelievers. The New Testament takes a different tack. But here, this is a radical thing to say to these people. Settle down. Do your best for the city where you are and pray. Why? Isn't it enough just to get busy and to serve God in my work and do all I can? No, it's not. When we pray, we recognize the ultimate reality. When we fail to pray, it's because we imagine we're self-sufficient. We imagine that we can through our efforts, our intelligence, our schemes, our cleverness, our industry and our resources, that we can get through and muddle through and somehow achieve what has to be done. And God is saying, you can't. I don't know about you, but if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus and your prayer life is weak as mine sometimes is, it's because I have an overdose of self-sufficiency. It's because I imagine that I can cope on my own. It's because I fail to realize I am a dependent creature. I'm contingent. I'm always subject to the provision and the strength and the resources given to me by God. And once I forget that, I I stop praying, apart from the notional prayers. 
the, the, the polite prayers, the prayers for food and grace and where other people are watching. You know those sorts of prayers. You, you pray in prayer meetings so that other people will know that you're there. But really praying, really getting down before God and saying, whatever gifts, resources, and abilities you've given me, they're your gift to me. And no matter how hard I work with them, I can't do the business. You are the one that does it. Unless you build this house, I labor in vain. That's what I pray. And he says, pray. So what about us? Let's ask the question then, so what? And try and bring it home in the time I've got, which is very short. Well, I think we've got to be very careful not to simply read across Old Testament text to New Testament people. But we also recognize that the, the Bible, for all its great complexity and variety and its long duration of being put together, there is ultimately, through all those various authors, there is one genius behind it. And he does put it together in a coherent way. And I want to suggest a couple of things to you. First of all, that God is still a God who speaks and God still acts in our world. God still calls. Can I recommend, if you haven't read it, a book by Oz Guinness entitled The Call? In that, Guinness, using Scripture, explains that there are two calls that God issues. First of all, the universal call to everyone everywhere, God calls all people to repent and trust the Lord Jesus. And then having done that, as many of you have, the call that God issues is an individual personal call where he comes to you and he equips you and resources you to be his agent wherever he puts you. And God calls each one of us. And I trust and pray that you have repented. You've taken that obedient step in response to his universal call. If not, you need to do that. And if you've done it, then you need to be attentive to that individual call that he issues to you. And he's still speaking and still acting in our world. And what's he saying? Once called, now what? What are we to do living in this post-Christian, dark, benighted world? If Dreher is right, the lights are going out. How do we live? How do we cope? What do we do? Well, if I had more time, I would tell you. I'm only going to make a few suggestions from Scripture. There are lots of ideas out there, lots of materials for you to access. Dreher's suggestion is that we all shut down and retreat into communities, a bit like Benedict back in the 6th century. That's why he calls his book The Benedict Option. It's an interesting idea, but I'm not going to suggest that's right. Wayne Grudem, in his book on uh, politics according to the Bible, says that especially those of us who live in a liberal democracy where we have an opportunity to influence government, we should be involved in what he calls significant Christian influence on the government. Not everyone everywhere can do that. I've been to places where 
Christians don't have any influence, let alone significant influence. But in this country, there are those who do have influence in the government, and there are opportunities. And there are people who were marching on Friday night and marching yesterday, trying to make a point and have an influence in the government. And there are those who are close to power, who are seeking to be influential. And that's very important. But not everyone's in that position. One other writer talks about faithful present. His name is James Davison Hunter. And he says, every Christian is meant to be faithful to God wherever God puts them. I think there's much in that. Faithful to each other, faithful to the truth of Scripture, and faithful wherever God puts us. There are many, many suggestions. Don Carson, in his book, Christ and Culture, Revisited, talks about Christian living that is bold, being faithful witnesses, having a big vision for the world, I was glad to hear about Albania. That's part of God's world. And God is interested not just in South Belfast, but in the whole world. And loving the neighbor who lives next door as we delight in the glory of God. So lots of recipes. But let me just bring you back to Scripture, back to the New Testament, and leave you with some passages that I'm sure you're familiar with. I want to suggest that your identity shapes your role. When Jeremiah is writing this, he's writing to people who are exiles, and they know they're exiles. The New Testament lifts that idea and applies it to all Christians. Hebrews says in 13 and 14 that we seek the city that is to come. We're described in Philippians as being citizens of heaven, eagerly awaiting a Savior from there, our Lord Jesus Christ. So the New Testament lifts this idea that some people in the Old Testament times were exiled from the land, and the New Testament lifts it and develops it and takes the theme further and says, every Christian has two passports. The passport of the place where you are, but no less important and indeed more significant is the passport of heaven of which you're a citizen. And so this idea of being on assignment from heaven as citizens of heaven in a foreign world is found throughout the New Testament. Hebrews have mentioned, First Peter addressed the letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion. James verse one of chapter one, again, lifts the same idea. So again and again through the New Testament, every Christian is pictured as someone who belongs to another realm. Ultimately, that's our first allegiance, but we're also placed here as God's people here. But our role is shaped by our identity as exiles. So what is our activity? What's our work to be? Well, you know that the Lord Jesus incorporated the heavenly salt and light company. Matthew 5, he says about his followers, you are the light and salt. The light and salt, light to take truth and goodness into dark places, salt to be the preservatives and the 
the challenging influence in a decaying culture. And he set up the Heavenly Salt and Light Company, and he's made us all directors in it. We all have a role to play in his Salt and Light Company. He says, as he prays the night before he goes to the cross about his followers, to his Father, they're in the world but not of it. Someone has said the danger for us is that we become of the world, but we're not in it. We're affected by its thinking and its culture and its ways, but we're not actually out there as God's agents of change and influence for good. So the New Testament could be summarized very, very simply, very quickly in this way. We're called to be good citizens, so long as that is consistent with our first passport. I have four grandchildren in America. They have four passports. The problem will be when they get to 18, which one they'll play with. But you and I, as followers of Christ Jesus, have two. And wherever we are, we're called to be good citizens. Check out Romans 13. See 1 Peter chapter 2. Even under a monster like Nero, we're called to be good citizens. Obey the authorities until the point comes when the choice is between obeying God or obeying the government, and then you obey God. Not only that, we are called to do good works. Ephesians 2.10 makes clear that God's plan is that his people would not just be good citizens and being nice and helpful, but we would be marked by good works. This indeed was what the Lord Jesus says in Matthew 5, that our good works will provoke people looking on to praise and glorify God. So the good works that we do are not the price we pay to get right with God, but they are the outcome of our right relationship with him. And they're meant to be for his glory, not our commendation. That's easy. That's clear. It's just doing it's the hard bit. And then we are called, just as these people were called, because there is a very close similarity, isn't there, between what they were called to do and what we are called to do in our exile. They're called to pray. We are called to pray for our enemies. The Lord Jesus says in Matthew 5, a striking, difficult thing, to pray not just for my loved ones and my family. I have a little list. Maybe you have too, and I go through it. My family and those I like. It's easy to pray for those people most of the time. But to pray for my enemies. The Lord Jesus told us to do that. And the New Testament goes on to tell us to pray for those in authority. First Timothy 2. To pray for all people. All manner of prayers. So the challenge for us as I pull it together is to ask you, having heard God's universal call and repentance, Wherever you are, God has put you there to serve him, to promote his shalom, and to share his truth. So, how's it going? Let me finish with the words of Matthew 16 and 18. The Lord Jesus speaking, no higher authority. The God-man says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell is a symbol for the, the forces, the resources, the powers of evil. And the Lord Jesus is saying, I know that 
as church history will unwind right through to 2019 whenever they're doing this magnificent construction in the Crescent Church, I know that there'll be times of persecution and challenge and difficulty. I know that there'll be times when the culture is more sympathetic and open and receptive. And I know that there are places, and I've been to some, where there are armed guards on the door to keep us safe as we meet. But no matter what, he says, no matter what they do, the forces of evil and darkness, however they wax and wane, however much opposition they, they concoct and whatever they throw against me, do you know what he said? They can't prevail. They won't prevail. That's what happened when Jesus rose again. He conquered not just paid the price of my individual sin. It wasn't just that he was buying a whole lot of individual policies for forgiveness from sin. It's not that Christ died to give me an insurance policy against hell and associated fire risks. That's not what the cross was about. It was about the reversal of the fall. It was about bringing us back into relationship with God. It was defeating the forces of death and evil and wickedness. And they are conquered. They're putting up resistance still, but they are ultimately beaten. He's waiting to come back. And one day he will come back and he'll meet each one of us and we will have an individual interview with him. He will review what we have done for him how we have served him, how we have used the resources that he entrusted to us. And my prayer as we bow our heads now is that each one of us will hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Lord Jesus, we look forward to your return. It may be in our lifetime, it may not. But we know that you will return. We know that you win. We know that you are the conqueror. And our confidence in this world that is hostile and dark and dangerous and difficult is in you. If you are the one who can go into death and conquer it and come out, what can you not do? You are the one who will bring us home to that heavenly city where you are preparing a place for us. In your name we give you thanks and look forward to living with confidence in this world meanwhile. Amen.